Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. I always appreciate your work, Walter. And if anyone out there would like to know more about Walter's music, WalterParks.com. If you would like to reach out to me, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always reach me through my website. I would love to hear from you. And if you would ever like to join me on Saturday morning, I host a writing gathering, a writing group. We call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week, gathering at 10 o'clock on Zoom, 10 o'clock Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time. I do this with my creative partner, Allegra Houston, and we call it the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week. So if you'd like to join us, uh, the door is always open. Anybody can come. We go for about an hour, uh, sometimes an hour and 15 minutes. It's, a, it's good fun. Everybody laughs. And the Zoom link is at imaginativestorm.com, imaginativestorm.com. And so today I am doing what I love to do, interview people and this this fellow i have on today is someone i've known for quite a while his name is jamon hill and jamon's part of the the leaf family the leaf festival family most especially part of the leaf poetry slam family he and i have been on the stage at leaf i do not know how many times in the poetry slam venue at leaf and and it's a it's a very competitive proposition in fact and and jamon hill is one of the one of the the gems of the poetry slam movement the spoken word movement this man has a handle on how to be on the stage and commit to not only himself also to the audience and he's one uh, more than one slam at Leaf, and we just had a great, great fun. Uh, Jamon is also a teacher. He works down in Alabama at the University of Alabama, and he's in full-time professor, and he's also doing a lot of stuff in the arts. So, Jamon Hill, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Nave. It's good to, good to see you. Good to hear from you again. I would like to begin our conversation that school has now begun and you are teaching at the University of Alabama. It's a big university and you have lots of students and you've been there for a while. So I would love for you to tell us what it's been like for you to get back in the groove as a teacher and tell us what you teach and tell us a bit about your students and and your experience at the university there in Alabama. Yes, so I teach for the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa, um, Roll Tide, the Crimson Tide. And there I am in adjunct teaching intro to African-American studies. I actually have multiple teaching jobs. That is my adjunct job and that one I teach online, but here in Birmingham, I teach at the middle and high school level for my nonprofit organization, The Flourish Alabama. It's it's an interesting time in, in both of those different arenas Um, Because teaching at the university level, in person, I taught in person for a few years, and now I teach online. And the students are used to being online. They sign up for an online Intro to African American Studies class. Now, my middle and high school students that I've worked with at various schools within the Birmingham City School District, they are used to class being in person. So that sudden shift to virtual was very difficult 
especially over the spring, we lost a ton of students. We would have courses where I would come in to work with a teacher and the class role would be 30. And we would see four students the entire semester, like four or five students. So we were missing 25 students. Now we're back in person. There's an excitement, but there's also a little air of unease as well. Because yes, COVID, everything is looming. But a lot of times for these kids, you know how it is when you're that young. You're, you're not really worried about those things. You, you think you're invincible. And you're here with all of these older teachers who recognize their vincibility. <laughs> you know, the older we get, the more vincible we realize we are, right? <laughs> oh, man. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic to be in the schools, to work with the kids, and to not only encourage them, but also navigate. I teach poetry workshops. I teach creativity workshops. And it's all about opening up and exploring and being vulnerable. Because in that space, it's a masked space at the same time. And a mask naturally hides some of that vulnerability, closes you off in a certain way, and is something that is also necessary. We're asking kids to open up while at the same time requiring that they stay closed off definitely and completely for their safety. It's an interesting observation you are making about the mask and and opening up and i was thinking when you were talking about it it is true that when we put our mask on we we hide things that said i sometimes feel a lot more myself with my mask on i don't mm -hmm. feel as vulnerable maybe or I, I don't feel I feel more private and that feels good and which is getting me around to asking you to explore a bit in terms of connecting doing something with your poetry or your art that connects you emotionally does the mask really hinder that or can you actually connect beautifully from an emotional point of view with a mask on. And even when you're speaking through your mask, your connection to the interior emotional atmosphere remains regardless of whether the mask is there or not. Um, the best way that I can describe it, the realm of senses. Think about when you can't see. Yes, you have lost one sense, but all of your other senses are heightened. Now think of that in terms of spiritual connection and emotional connection. When you mask, one of your key indicators, your mouth and your nose and the lower half of your face, we can no longer see. So that requires that you have to do more work with your eyes. It requires that you have to do more work with your body, your forehead and how you move your forehead becomes so much more apparent in terms of determining what emotion you're going through when you don't have the face to match, I don't, I can't tell if you're smiling. Now I'm looking at your ears to see if your ears are rising when you're smiling, because I can't tell just by looking at your mouth. So it does require us to be more creative in how we emotionally connect. And it does also give us a certain level of hiddenness in our vulnerability. Like you said, when you have the mask on, you feel more private. It's okay to open up a little bit more because, well, they don't see it all. There's something that they still don't see. 
And especially like for a reserve student, that would help. Now for maybe like a big personality student, big personality students, they're always trying to take their mask down because they are big personality and they want to be seen in a certain way when they share. Others who keep that mask up, they might want to share. And it's easier when they have their mask up because there's a little bit of shield there, a little bit of protection that they have. But I feel like it definitely heightens everything else you have going on to emote and communicate. Funny, I've never thought about my forehead in respect to it being an indicator of my emotional tones. The brow wrinkled or the brow softened. I suppose you could, from a performance point of view, practice the using the forehead, being more aware of it as a tool, as a something that would communicate emotion. The students who are with you now live, they are all wearing their masks. Are you finding in Alabama, which is one of the places where people aren't as vaccinated as in other places, mm-hmm. How are you navigating those waters and what, what's that all about down there? So it's really interesting because certain areas um, of the state, especially, are more against these sort of things than others. It's primarily a white audience that has been very much against having masks or getting vaccinated, especially in Alabama. We see cities like Coleman, where there's been like a large anti-vax, anti-mask movement. And now Coleman is dealing with COVID cases. It's interesting how that occurs, even in more local areas. I think that really, for us, it's about the diligence that's occurring within the schools that we work in. So we're working within Birmingham City Schools. And not only are they providing vaccines, so they're having like vaccine drives, also mandating masks in the schools. And that's where, for us, if those guidelines are being followed for our organization, the Flourish, that's when we feel more comfortable going into the schools. But also, we are prepared and able to go virtual. If um, our teaching artists feel uncomfortable, or if the schools feel uncomfortable with bringing teaching artists in, we're adjusted to and ready for the virtual world and and how to teach um, from that. Well, that sounds really rather well organized. I'm a big fan of vaccinations. I have my vaccination, both of them, and I am completely in the camp of having vaccinations. I know a lot of my friends I've spoken with, and they have a completely opposite view of things. The vaccination is an invasion. It's it's an imposition. There are conspiracies from the big pharma to control us. Dr. Fauci is a criminal and the list, the list is long. And I never really engage that. I just say to people, well, I've had both my vaccinations and I've always been a fan of vaccination since polio arrived. And I was, Mm -hmm. took my first polio inoculation by way of the sugar cube. So I think it's important in these public conversations like you and I are having now to just simply to simply say it I'm I'm all for vaccinations and I think it's a it's a good thing and let it let it go with that and I appreciate your view of things and it's good to get a report from the field what's really going on in a hot spot in America and so you're saying that 
mostly it's the white enclaves that seem to be resisting the vaccination. What, what's going on in the other communities? I can speak for myself and what I've and what I've seen in my immediate circle. I think that when it comes to the the vaccination, it comes with a lot of health issues. It's really popular to politicize. So things have become vax versus anti-vax or something that exists kind of in my generation is the disparaging of those who have yet to get the vaccine. So like the problem is that people aren't getting vaccinated. And I think that there is a lot of miseducation surrounding those things. Because for example, you can be a fan like you are of, of the vaccine, but like you say, you're not disparaging those who aren't getting the vaccine. Um, I think that recognizing that people have a choice um, is important, but also understanding that we cannot, as a, as a country, try and place blame on people who don't get the vaccine because that's irresponsible for us as a country. You and I are both vaccinated. We can still catch COVID, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And if we start walking around, take this for example, I get the vaccine and I'm like, cool, I don't have to wear a mask, I don't have to wash my hands, I don't have to do anything to prevent the spread of COVID. Now I am still able to spread COVID to other people because if I contract it just running around and doing whatever, I can pass it on to somebody else. We've done nothing to stop the spread, we've only helped ourselves. That's where I think that we should be focusing more on being safe, being clean, and promoting communal health. So recognizing, yes, the vaccine is something that is a personal choice because it affects me, but also then recognizing your communal responsibility, which is masks, which is sanitation, which is, you know, six feet apart. These are things that help the community. If somebody doesn't want to get the, the vaccine, I understand. It's your choice. I understand. I get it. Um, and for those who, who feel pressured by their, by their jobs and things, I also want to make known as well, you can file for a religious exemption and not have to get it if your, your job is mandating it. I think that there is such a push on the vaccine to make things suddenly normal again. And it's like, that is not what is going to do it. It's not going to suddenly make things normal again. We as a country need to take up some communal responsibility that is about action and change. It's almost like a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid fix on a problem that is built off of the spread of a, of a disease, not the symptoms of the disease. I love the way you place the responsibility on yourself and on me and those of us who have been vaccinated. I know that my next door neighbor who's vaccinated had a, a breakthrough case. She, she had a mild breakthrough case. She had a fever. She didn't really think it was COVID. She thought, well, maybe I better check. I think I just have a little, little bump here. Well, sure enough, it was, it was positive. She tested positive for COVID. I then had a test and it came back negative. So I didn't pick it up, although I had been around her. And it was then I started to think about what you just lifted up. I, I realized I dropped my guard. 
she was vaccinated. My next door neighbor, Allegra, is vaccinated. So we were relaxed. No big deal. Allegra even rode in the car with with our, my next door neighbor to to the local grocery store. Fortunately, Allegra tested negative as well. Dawned on me. I thought, my God, I could have just as easily have had it as not. And my guard is down. So it occurred to me, the people who are not vaccinated, I think there are two categories. There's one group of people who think, well, it's no big deal. It's not a problem. Uh, Maybe COVID doesn't even exist. They're just cruising along, not giving it a thought. Then the other group, the group of people who've chosen not to get a vaccination for whatever reasons, they're very, very careful because they know that they, they need to be really careful. So you and I are at we are more dangerous to them than yeah. they they are are to us. So yeah. instead of me saying to somebody, have you been vaccinated? And they say, well, no. And then I say, well, I can't hang around you because you're likely to give me COVID. It's a, a better way to phrase it. And I did this with some friends recently. I said, you all aren't vaccinated. I'm sorry. I can't come to dinner because I don't want to be the one to give you COVID-19 because my yeah. guard is down. I could be the one that's positive. Your risks are higher with me than my risks are, are with you. Exactly. And and funny enough, they hadn't thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. They, they weren't thinking because most people are saying, I've been vaccinated and you're a danger to me. So I love that you lifted that up because I think it's an important note. That said, I would like to see everybody get a vaccination because I do think yeah. I am in that camp and I'm an advocate for vaccinations and I sometimes do not understand some of the arguments people offer up for reasons why they don't get their vaccination. But we've heard those arguments, Jamon, all all over the world. We know all of those arguments. Mm -hmm. In terms of your teaching and how you engage, are you feeling as full and excited about being a teacher as you were when you started all this? Are you as committed and The short answer is the excitement, yes, but it's recent. When we went virtual, um, it was it was so difficult, and we lost a lot of a lot of teachers. Um, A lot of teachers quit teaching. I mean, imagine it. You know that there are thirty. You have thirty kids between the ages of thirteen and seventeen that you are to see every day from a certain time. And you've never seen them before in your life. In passing in the hallway, you know they exist. And you log into your class and there are five or six students there. Now this isn't college where these are adults and they might've just not decided to show up today and they might have a job. No, these are 13 to 17 year olds. And it's like, I know that your parents are probably at work. I don't know what you're doing, where you are, where you're going. I have no idea. And I have no way to reach you or to connect with you. My passion is to connect with you. So every day you already start off having not reached 90% of the students that you work with. And that's tough to do that every day. Now, this year, when things came back in person, the excitement was instantly back. You step into the classroom and it's like, yes, we've all made it here. We've all made it here alive and and well enough to to get into this building. And you're able to reach the students in a new way that you might not have been able to do in the virtual framework. 
I remember one of my jobs, I stopped teaching at Lawson State Community College because the virtual toll for me was just too much. It was too much trying to do that. And to be back in person with these students, the excitement is instantly back. It was the moment I stepped into a classroom. I was like, yep, yep, this is what I love. This is what I love about it. This is what's fun is connecting with the students, seeing them remembering their names, having them say their names 30 times so I can finally remember it, seeing their growth, seeing them when they're dozing off, seeing them when they don't want to pay attention and you you walk up to them and you speak with them. And on the college level, because it's all virtual, there's a sterileness to it in a sense where I get to interact with them through the posts that they make. So it's like just reading and providing comments. And a lot of them are getting into it. And it's fun to see how they change throughout the semester as they read the material. Because I'm not providing lectures. They very rarely are sending me emails. The lectures and everything are provided there for them. But it's all through our interactions. And they don't respond to the comments that I leave on their papers either. If I send like an email to the class, you know, they're not responding to that either. But when I'm in person, it's such a blast. This is how it ties into poetry. When I really got into the work with the Flourish Alabama, my creativity, especially when it was virtual, it was harder for me to create. It was very hard for me to create poetry. As we got back into the swing of things with being in person and being with the students, writing has been a lot easier. I've been inspired to write a lot more. I've been experiencing things a lot more because when you're in your house cooped up the whole time, you don't really experience much. But I tell anybody, like you, vacations, I'm the hugest fan of. Like you get to gain so much knowledge, experience, and perspective. You can't afford to travel to Senegal. Try speaking to a kid (laughs) because there's so much possibility that they believe in and you will experience so much. Put yourself in a classroom, just talk and let them express themselves and see if you're not inspired. I watched a conversation between Kendrick Lamar and Rick Rubin the other day, and he said he loves speaking to kids. He's like, a lot of people don't understand kids, but I I love talking to them. I feel like they understand me and I, I understand them in a certain way. And he's like, I'll have a conversation with a child. I'll just go into the booth and and record a song and it'll have nothing to do with what the child said, but they inspired me with the way that they view the world. That's where I'm at with a lot of my writing is, is um, getting, tapping back into that possibility that, that these, these kids, like we said, they think they're invincible. Thinking you're invincible comes with a lot of perks because you see a lot of things that are possible and being around all that possibility just opens you up more too. Um, So, yeah. It never occurred to me to think of talking to a child as traveling to a distant land. And yet, once you brought it up, it's really obvious because a lot of these young children and then young adults, I think when you get to be 15, you can have the title young adult, no problem. They don't have the filters, so they just go wherever they please. And it is interesting. I did have a chance once in my life to go to Senegal. And I, I went to Ile de Gore and stood at the door where the people were loaded onto the ships and watched, mm-hmm. watched that port. And I will say it was 
quite an effort to get from the States to Senegal, lots of airplane flights and this and that. And when you said Senegal, I just clicked because I had, I have been there and I haven't been all over the world, but I have been to that, to Dakar and, Mm -hmm. and and I could see it, smell it, hear it. And then when you said, well, it's just like talking to a child. I was thinking of Dakar as this rambunctious place with, it's a French speaking area with all kinds of local languages. The French, of course, impose the language on to the, to the country. So there are many languages spoken in Senegal and it's rambunctious like a child. And so I was, I thought, wow, I don't have to go anywhere. I could just talk to a kid and I'll have the same experience that I did <laughs> walking around the streets in Senegal. <laughs> I love that idea you made, the poetic leap of the city and the child. Mm-hmm. I think that's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so what about your your poetry and all the work you're doing in that arena? I know that you're going to hopefully be at the Leaf Festival with me this fall. And we've asked you, I've asked you to open the bands with some of the poems that you do. So and not only are you a teacher, but you are a perfectly capable uh, top level performer and you can stand on any stage and do your creative work. I often say to people, one of the things I've always, I always love about getting around really, really great performance poets slam poets and people that do this work on the stage like you do they're always a little upset because they don't have a stadium of sixty thousand to perform in so when you get a whole bunch of poets together all sort of slightly upset because they don't have a big audience the energy level is is high it's like in a sense it's like talking to children Mm -hmm. reflect on your poetry a bit sir one i want to take a moment to just acknowledge one of my um, mentors in my in my city of Birmingham, Alabama, Voice Porter, who recently passed away um, unexpectedly um, just a, a couple weeks ago. I think I had I had messaged you about that. Um, and today, actually, after this, um, I'll be heading to um, a tribute tribute to voice where a lot of the the poets and friends of his will be performing. And the poem that I'm going to be performing there, it's it's one that I'm working on. It's one that I'm memorizing. It's I knew why I wrote it, but it gave an entire new meaning with voice's death. The very last poem that he heard me perform at, at our monthly open mic, this is actually the, the monthly open mic is what we're all about to give the tribute to him at. It's called Bards and Broods. It happens at the beginning of every month. This month, we just have it on the 10th. But it's called My Childhood Pleads for My Swift Return to Infinity. And the whole idea of the poem and of work that I've been doing recently is to return, a return of sorts, to the possibilities that exist in who we are. And the entire poem tried to embody my childhood, asking me to come back to possibility and to come back to really. The poem doubles. As you know, the the longer a poem sits with you, the more meanings they, they take on. But voice, it's also a poem that talks about losing voice. 
ironically, his poetry name was Voice Porter. Voice provided a platform for all the poets in Birmingham, Alabama. Everybody knew Bards and Brews, which was an event he co-founded. The very first slam I ever won. The very first slam I ever won. I think it might have been the first slam I actually competed in. I have to get my calendar get together, but I think it's the very first slam I competed in was a Bards and Brews. It was my first time in in Birmingham doing something like this. So I perform at this slam and it's called Eat, Drink, Read, Write. They do it every October. Eat, Drink, Read, Write slam. I've never been there before. So I have no idea why it's called Eat, Drink, Read, Write. Apparently, in the very first round of the slam, you're supposed to do a poem about food. And I don't know this. So I go up there and I do a poem that has absolutely nothing to do with food. And I get this incredible score. I'm walking off the stage. Everybody, the whole room's buzzing with excitement. Who's this new kid in on the block with this amazing work? And Voice, who's the host, comes up to me and says, hey, um, incredible poem. The first round is supposed to be about food. And I'm like, oh, no. And he's like, but listen, it's okay. I'm not going to kick you out or anything like that. You have incredible work, and I, I, I want to hear some more. He's like, we'll just take off a couple of points, and we'll keep you in the slam. I end up winning the slam and so funny because like everybody who was there at that slam, we all know the story of like, who's this this kid comes up? He's not even doing a poem about food. He ends up winning and everybody's like, wow. And and I hear about all the other events that are happening. So I start going up to Birmingham every um twice a month, once for Bards and Brews and another event called On Stage at the Carver Theater and voices the host for that one too. So he's the first person who remembers me here in Birmingham. He's the first person who recognizes and affirms me here in Birmingham and encourages me. And, and voice was like a child. Voice was, was just like a kid. He was always having fun. He was always playing with the audience. He was always encouraging people and telling them they could do these things. In a lot of ways, he reminds me of my childhood, pleading and asking me to return to this idea of possibility. Do you have the poem available for us? Yes, I'm going to try and perform it from memory because I'm going to have to try and perform it from memory tonight. So we're going to do this. I fell for you. Watch the sky dance its way to the ground, looking for the scent of your footsteps. I came with the sky. Not an angel, but a cloud. Full of tears and condensation, but all you felt was fog and unclear heaviness, a blanket hampering your sight. You did not know how to be wrapped in an imperfect storm. I was a storm once before I fell for you. Flashes of brilliance and thunderous voice. I thought I owned the atmosphere, thought you looked up to me. I was so vast, so rumbling, so gray and blue and black and black and purple and filled with stars until I fell for you. And I realized how insignificant I was, just, just one cloud, one part of something more. I, I came with the sky, looking for a scent or, or feeling for a memory. I don't know how you sense things, but I, I sensed 
for some semblance of you and every cloud full of tears did not cry. Instead, we stood there on the ground waiting for the sun or you, whichever came first, so many of us, thick, rife with worry, wonder, waiting. I don't write you enough, but I fell for you or your memory. You left this earth before I could reach you. You left this earth before you could believe in me again. You left this earth, having forgotten that you were once the sky, that you were still the sky and more. When I noticed you forgot how to fly, I fell, I fell, I fell, I fell as fast as I could. I brought the entire sky with me, the thunder and lightning, the rain and snow. I brought it all down with me, looking for some semblance of your footsteps. I wanted to carry you to our heaven before you ran for the one they made for you, the one you had to die for. I know, I know, I know you're still here somewhere. I know you're still sinking somewhere, but I will find you. I, I, I brought the entire sky with me, every cloud and, and all the stars. So, so don't be afraid of the fog. It is just the sky preparing to bring you back home. That's the, that's the poem. And look, I got all the way through it. Look at that. You managed to, so you, you do have the poem memorized and you were able to deliver it beautifully. And, and soon you will do it again. And at the open mic with all of the poets. Panicking the whole time, panicking the whole time. Like what is the next word? But they happened. I'm, I'm happy they happened. I was like, I don't know what's coming next. And it just flowed right out. Look at that. Right. And, and you, you know, one of the things I love about panic, you say panicking all the time. And when somebody first starts to do this work, they feel panic and the panic often is restrictive. And the further we get into this, the panic takes a different personality. It allows something that we still maybe call panic, but it's more of a delightful panic than it is a treacherous panic, perhaps. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, because like, for example, like when you said when you said restrictive, I think of it this way. Like I mentioned, I'm memorizing the poem, right? So as I'm memorizing the poem, there is this huge fight to get the words right, right? Um, there's this fight like, oh, I got to get the correct words. I got to get the correct words. But then what eventually happens is, no, I can, I can say what words I want to, right? And you start to open up in the performance even more. Your performance becomes even greater once you're comfortable. Then you start to, this is when we see, especially like with actors, right? This is when we start to stray from the script. When we know the script, we then start to stray from it because we start to play, right? That's what we do in, in acting, we play. So we start to play with it more. We start to say different lines, different ways. We start to have more, even more fun with it. And that's what I love about the craft, right? Because if you go back and you look at my more popular, well-known poems that I perform regularly, one of the things that I learned one time, I was doing a feature and I decided, I know this poem word for word, but I'm going to read it from my book because if they see me reading it from my book, they will associate it with the book and buy the book. So <laughs> I'm reading it and I realize. This isn't the poem that I say out loud. I've changed around words, stanzas, lines. This 
because they're living, breathing things, and we open them up, we open them up, and we open them up. The majority of my poems is always fun now. I like to do it. I'll go back and watch a video and have the written poem right next to me and see how different they are. And there's so much freedom in that. And people who begin writing poetry or writing in general, they do think they have to stay exactly on the words they've written and they need to perform them exactly that way. And the further into this work we get, and you and I have been at this a long time, so we know this to be true, we learn to trust what comes out of our mouths as much as what flows through our, through our bodies onto the page by way of the pen. And, and you keep mixing all that stuff up and eventually something settles and that becomes what you sign off on. Mm-hmm. And but I have to say, I performing and I'm more of storytelling type performer. I don't push it quite as hard as you do. And, and, and I think it's because if I start to push it too hard, I, I disconnect emotionally. I love the way you can just push, push, push. And you stay right on the emotional tone. If I push, <laughs> I, I kind of lose it a bit and I'm out there and decating and wandering around. But I do find that when I just relax into it and let it unfold, it does have a life of its own. And I've mm-hmm. come to trust that and enjoy it. Because at the end of the day, there's not anything really at stake to mm-hmm. let yourself go in those directions. There's actually more at stake when you hinder yourself. You lose a lot more by tightening up than you do blooming out. Mm-hmm. And I think that both of those tensions are constantly happening because like for some, yeah, for some, like, and we mentioned this earlier when you talked about the mask, right? Cause you're like, I feel more at ease when I have the mask on, right? Versus with the mask off. And those tensions are constantly playing and tugging at each other because like for some folks, this right here, like the, the relaxing into it, that might be for them. So when they're out here, they're able to tighten up and they have, when they're in here is when they lose it and they're not able to find what is going on and they might lose what the performance is in that. So it's, it's interesting how all of those things are constantly at play and from performer to performer. It's important for everybody to understand the notion that we all have a style and that style is truthful to who we are. It's truthful to you. It's truthful to me. I can't really, I could probably try to do you on stage, but it would be me doing you, or you could do Nave on stage and it would be you doing me, but it wouldn't be me or it wouldn't be you. And if people can just relax into the idea that what they were born with is the most important aspect of who they are, their essence. And that's where the art can come from, quiet, shy, or, or rambunctious. And that, that's really important, I think. And I want to add to that. That's where the art not only can, but should come from. I teach Poetry University. One of the things that we do on day one is we, we tell them that when it comes to our educational philosophy, it is built on the idea of everything that you're looking for as a writer, as a performer, as a researcher, as whatever, is already in you. 
we're not here to build a bunch of replicas of Jamon Hill, right? Our job as educators is to draw out. So when we're working with you, our goal is to draw out what is already within you. I tell the same thing to my high school students. Like, hey, when I tell you that you're important, it's because you are important. So I don't want you to repeat back to me what I said. I want you to create your own words, your own story, and you tell that because that's important. And if it's coming from you, as long as it's true to you, that's what's going to make it resonate with people or at least resonate with yourself. And there's such creative freedom in that knowledge because it, it's already there. You don't have to go anywhere to find your voice. You were born with it. And mm -hmm. if you can just embrace it and let it be with you forever, then the rest of it will take care of itself. Speaking of voice, I just realized we're getting close to the top of our hour. Could you m maybe offer us another poem? Yes, 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 yes. Let me pull up the poem that I want to share with you guys. Um, it's an unfinished poem, but I'm so excited to share it with you guys. Um, I want to plug an artist. They are a rapper. I, I consider all rappers American philosophers. So this American philosopher goes by the name IDK. He recently dropped an album that was called You See For Yourself. It's all set up as one word. U-S-E-E, -E, the number four. Y-O-U-R-S-E-L-F, you see for yourself. And I wrote a response called I Saw For Myself. Um, I listened to the album and um, it was absolutely incredible. And this poem is still being, still being worked on, but I would love to share it um, with you all today. I found God in a beat drop. I found redemption, forgiveness, love. The way my head bobbed, my face contorted, my body rocked, the beat dropped, and I ain't remember nothing but how infinite melanin could be. My skin became a road map unraveling dots, glowing in patches of sunshine. The night was eternal, and every foot was tapping, every voice was a chorus that sang until the whole earth vibrated and we drowned out the cicadas. Have you ever found community in a kick drum? A family tree fashioned out of block party bass. The air is thick with nostalgia, the beat drop. And for a moment, it don't matter if you are alone in your car, the moment is communal. The moment you met someone whose ears have also heard the message, whose body has also felt the reverb, hit them in the chest and reverberate throughout their bones. The beat, the beat will hug your soul. Tell you it is okay to be alone. Because even now, in this moment, there is someone who has a vibration to match your mood. And they have packaged it just for you without even knowing who you are. And tell us the name of the artist again. IDK. IDK. <laughs> and the name of the song is You See For Yourself. Yes, yes. And that could be a statement of fact. It could also be a call to action. You see for yourself. 
it could also be an invitation too, I think. You see for yourself. And we're back to the self, to the original voice that we were born with. Well, Jamon, before we go, would you mind telling people how to get in touch with you and so they can follow your, your art? Yes, so y'all can y'all can follow um, all things Jamon um, at um, my website. That is jamonhill.com, J-A-H-M-A-N-H-I-L-L.com. And in addition, um, I am on the social medias, primarily Instagram. Um, so Jamon underscore Rondo, J-A-H-M-A-N underscore R-O-N-D-O. I'm the executive director of the Flourish Alabama. That's my nonprofit. We are on um, Instagram at the Flourish Alabama. Um, and I'm also the director of Poetry University, which is there at poetry underscore university, I think is where that's at. So if um, any of those things interest you, um, on my site, you'll see um, the work that I do in film, um, the work that I do in theater, all of that is located um, throughout those channels and those channels lead to other channels, but those are the main ones. <laughs> well, so Jamon, thank you so much for taking the time to reflect on your teaching and your new students coming in, the idea of vaccinations, offering us your, your poetry. And I, um, I, I send you good thoughts for your friend voice. I'm sorry to hear he's left this world. And I, I hope you and enjoy uh, experiencing the collective grief. I know you all will, and I hope you have that collective grief in, with a sense of, of, of joy, which it seems like that's the idea for the, yes. the gathering a little later after this interview. <laughs> yes, definitely. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing you very soon in person. All right. Yeah, I'll see you next month. That's right. We'll see each other next month at the at the Leaf Festival in Black Mountain, North Carolina. For those of you listening out there, if you have ever been to North Carolina, you may know Black Mountain. If you haven't, it is a lovely place. So thanks, Jamon, and I'll, I'll catch you down the line somewhere. All right. See you. And there you go. That concludes my conversation with Jamon Hill. As you learned at the end of our time together, Jamon and I are going to rendezvous with some other poets at the upcoming Leaf Festival, Fall 21. The Leaf Festival requires vaccination proof or negative COVID testing proof. Either way, you can get in. Without those two documents, you'll have to wait until another festival. So Jamon and I are going to show up and we're going to participate in the in the Poetry Slam. This will be the 50th Poetry Slam I've hosted live at the Leaf Festival. So I'm looking forward to getting back in the groove a bit on the stage and seeing what happens. I'm broadcasting this show from Taos, which means I'm going to have to get from Taos, New Mexico to Asheville, North Carolina, and I plan to drive. I have a little Toyota and have brand new tires, and I'm going to take a little road trip and take my time going across the country and get a feel for the, for the travel thing again. I've been off the road now for almost a year and a half. Haven't forgotten how to drive, but it's going to take a little bit of an adjustment to go over the mountain from Taos and then find my way down to I-40 and head east on I-40. And if you've ever traveled 
the route from Taos, New Mexico to Asheville, North Carolina, you know that once you get on I-40, all you have to do is keep going. And actually, I-40 runs from California all the way to Wilmington, North Carolina. So once I hit that interstate, I won't need a road map or a GPS. I'll just keep driving until I get to Asheville and the Leaf Festival. I've lost count of how many times I've made the drive from Taos to Asheville or from Asheville to Taos. I suppose it's been at least um, 30, 40, 50 times over the last 25, 30 years of going back and forth between the two places, both of which feel like home to me, both of which have been really good to me artistically, as well as good to me from a community point of view. Both places, Taos and Asheville, have strong artistic communities, and I've been lucky to be able to be part of both of those communities over the years, and I'm looking forward to, to more engagement on, on both sides of the Mississippi River, if you will. And even though the Mississippi is actually in Memphis, Tennessee, that's where I-40 crosses over the Mississippi, once I get to the Mississippi, I feel like I'm in the east, officially, for some reason. And then, of course, heading back west, once I cross the Mississippi, it's my launch toward the, the west. So the Mississippi River has had a big influence in my life in terms of a landmark. You know, landmarks have always played a big role in my life. Crossing the Mississippi, I have fond memories of that. I also have fond memories of living in Asheville as a boy and looking toward Mount Pisgah and seeing the WLOS TV 13 tower rising off the top of Mount Pisgah. The mountain beside Mount Pisgah looks like a rat, and when we were children, my father would point to the mountain and say, there's Pisgah and the rat, and the rat's crawling up the side of Mount Pisgah. That was another landmark. And my memories have landmarks in them. That may be because I grew up in the mountains of western North Carolina, and the land is, is a great part of, of who I am, a great part of, of my memories. I think of trees. There's a big tree in Jonesboro, Tennessee, a, a large oak in the side yard of somebody's house. I don't know who who has the house, but I remember going to that tree and just absolutely being astounded at how big and old the tree was. So the landmarks are simple and they're profound all at the same time. And I think of New York City and some of the, the landmarks there, like, like the Empire State Building, changing colors based on the news or something that's happened in the world. On the 4th of July, if you look at the Empire State Building, you'll see it's red, white, and blue, symbolizing the red, white, and blue of the American flag in celebration of 4th of July. So I use what you might call landmarks in my poetry. At the Leaf Festival this year, I plan to be one of the sacrificial poets, as they call them, or the calibration poet. I'm going to offer a three-minute piece to give the judges a chance to warm up before they actually judge the poets in the competition. In the Poetry Slam, you have five judges arbitrarily chosen from the audience. And the judges are asked to judge the performance 0 to 10 like a diving match using decimal points. And you drop the high score and you drop the low score. You keep the middle three. And whatever the middle three adds up to is the score the poet gets for the round. So I'm going to now roll out the 
poem I'm going to do as the calibration poet at the Leaf Slam. There's a three minute and 20 second time limit. After that, time penalties. Oh my goodness, I hope I'm under three minutes. This poem is titled Dazzling Impermanence and it's in three sections. One, the impermanence of dreams. Beyond the lands of your air-sweeping dreams, the wind returns again and again from the wilds of the known through the distant trees where shiny red hair mixes with bees. The clouds above and the earth below along the rivers that always flow beyond where you are standing past what seems will redeem your dreams when your breath floats high in the crow-wide sky. On this good day, travel alone with little thought for what you own. Walk with yourself through the perfumed sage, or go to the shore where the curlews play, and you can too for a moment or so, until the wind tells you it's time to go, to who you are, to what you know, to where you soar, near or far, on the red-headed wind in your sky of bees. 2. The Impermanence of Love just south of Taos, a couple of weeks ago, on my way to Santa Fe, a road sign warned bighorn sheep. I scanned the land for wildlife. Nothing moved but my Toyota Corolla gliding 60 miles an hour, wind down, scent of sage in the air, Janis Joplin on the radio. I braked for the curves and started thinking about the first time I heard Janis cover Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee. You know, I always thought when Janice said she let him slip away, she meant he left her for another woman, or he hoboed to Seattle because he loved the rails more than he loved her, or he just plain turned mean and robbed a bank. Now I know better. Bobby died, and he did it in the arms of a woman that loved him. An hour after I got to Santa Fe, I watched a young married couple ordering sandwiches at the Aztec Cafe. They touched each other while they waited. The air was clean and dry. A few white clouds floated in the egg blue sky. 3. The Impermanence of Age Every Memorial Day weekend, hundreds of Harleys invade Taos. The bikers, mostly men with gray in their beards, ride their hogs, hair blowing back, leather slapping their skin, boots propped above power-stoking engines that boom through silver pipes, past house gems and minerals, Song's Asian restaurant, and Anthony Lopez's law office. You know, Harleys were roaring through Taos long before Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda rode easy over the Rio Grande looking for adventure and a place to smoke and lightning into the 21st century where they would never grow old. Just like the bikers, every Memorial Day weekend, helmets be damned these cats are riding with their souls free down the long road that always curves out a Sunday morning. They lean into the warm air, never noticing how their shadows ripple across fence post, barbed wire, and no trespassing signs. And there you go, my poem titled Dazzling Impermanence in three parts. I'm happy to say that 3A, a Taos Press, will be putting those three poems along with 97 other poems in a collection of poetry that will be published in the spring of 2022. So I'm thrilled about that book coming out. 
And meanwhile, we have arrived at just near the top of the hour, so I have just enough time to say goodbye and tell you that you've been tuned in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you ever so much, Walter, for all the work you do walterparks.com if you'd like to know more about walter's music if you'd like to reach out to me jamesnave.com that's my website nave is spelled n-a-v-e jamesnave.com you can email me through my website if you like and if you'd like to join me live on saturday morning i host a writing gathering 10 o'clock mountain time noon eastern time and i do this with my collaborative creative partner allegra houston and we just gather on zoom and write for an hour using prompts we call it the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session so if you if you have a hankering to to generate a little bit of writing well the door is always open and we would love to have you imaginativestorm.com hopefully we'll see you there And on that note, thanks once again for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you have the chance to tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.